Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. And we're doing something a little different this time. I've got my buddy Dave McCrory, who I've known for years. Dave is the VP of Engineering at Wise.io at GE Digital, a name that you've heard before on the podcast if you are have been listening for a while. And maybe we'll get into a little bit of that story when you introduce yourself, as well as Lawrence Chung. Lawrence is a managing partner at Perimeter, which is an SI focused on the IoT market. And Lawrence and I first got in touch when he reached out as a listener of the podcast, and we connected here at reInvent. Dave, Lawrence, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Sam. Thanks for having us. Why don't we, you know, let folks get to know you. Dave, tell us a little bit about your background. Sure. Before joining Wise.io, which is part of GE Digital, I was the CTO of Basho Technologies, which made React and open source NoSQL database. Prior to that, I was the SVP of engineering at Warner Music Group. And before that, I worked at VMware on the team that uh, built Cloud Foundry before it was spun out into Pivotal. Prior to that, I did quite a few other things, including two startups in the systems management and virtualization spaces. Yep. And we met back in those Pivotal Cloud Foundry days a long time ago. It (laughs) seems like a long time ago. (laughs) It was was a while now. Yeah. It's been, it's been five plus years. I know that. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Awesome. And Lawrence? Yeah, I began my career right at the dot-com boom in 2000. So spent, you know, a good chunk of time working with Deloitte's consulting. Okay. And just for various industries and spent some time in the nonprofit sector doing some significant work. I was more meaningful personally. And now I'm back here in the software sector, focusing on ILT, like you said, the ILT clients and markets, helping them implement solutions based on the AWS ecosystem. Oh, nice. Nice. And so we've all been here for a few days in sunny Las Vegas, or at least the first day was like windy Las Vegas. I don't know what was going on with that. There have been a ton of announcements here, as there always are at reInvent, and a ton, you know, focus on machine learning and AI, as well as the IoT ecosystem. And like these are a kind of a Venn diagram with some intersection in the middle. I figured a good way to get started would be to maybe just we each go around and say what we're most excited about. I don't know. That may be difficult, but, you know, we can give it a try. Lawrence? Yeah, sure. I'll start off. Yeah. SageMaker uh-huh. made a big splash yesterday during the keynote. So that's going to be an interesting product for a lot of developers. I think it's going to simplify you know, and accelerate time to market and maybe leave the complexity technical complexity of training models and all those other aspects of building a solution. Um, Do you want to give learning. a description of it? Yeah. From what I understand, there's a, you know, various, I guess, functional components to SageMaker that's been released. So there's this, you know, aspect of being able to set up a, I believe it's a Jupyter mm-hmm. compute instance. There's the ability to run jobs. Yeah. I believe there's a, you know, an aspect of building scale jobs, scale some training models, and then quickly host and deploy some of those models. Anything in particular you're most excited about in that for SageMaker? Yeah, well, I think overall it's, it's just the ability for, again, those looking to build solutions 
that have a practical market-facing component to be able to de- deploy as fast as possible. Yeah. And I think that's the most exciting aspect of this announcement. Yeah. So SageMaker, AWS made a big deal about SageMaker. When I think about like the AI in the cloud, and I've talked about this in my newsletter, like there are like three layers of the AI in the cloud stack. At the lowest level, there's AI-enabled infrastructure. You know, people often think about this as GPUs, but it doesn't necessarily have to be GPUs. Above that, there's like this platform layer. And these are, you know, targeting, you know, data scientists that don't want to have to mess with all the underlying infrastructure muckety-muck, like getting their GPUs to actually work. And above that is like the AI-enabled services. And actually, Amazon announced stuff in all three of those layers this week. But SageMaker is their second offering in the middle layer of that stack. They had Amazon ML, which allowed folks to develop and train machine learning models. But in like kind of the pure AWS fashion, it's like via API is like, it's, you know, it's arcane, you know, there's, there's like no usability, right? I mean, API level usability, but, you know, it's not like a user interface or anything like that, at least as I understand it. Whereas SageMaker, they've adopted, you know, as, as you mentioned, the more, you know, the increasingly popular Jupyter Notebook paradigm. And when I first saw it, I actually had a chance to play with it yesterday in one of the deep lens workshops when i first thought i was like okay yeah hosted jupyter notebooks that's not really all that interesting but then they've got this like one click deploy or one click train and like and they handle all of the training infrastructure and then one click deploy which that's not all that uncommon like everybody's got a version of that but the one click train is pretty cool and then they've got like they've done some work on the at the framework well first of all it's framework independent you can use whatever but they've done some work to be able to get, they've got these 10, 10 primary algorithms, right? That they've increased performance 10x, so they say. I'm willing to bet they have, if you optimize the algorithms properly, at least in my experience, it's roughly a 10x improvement over what you would see standard out of, say, a general purpose framework or suite of algorithms. Mm. So. Maybe it's nine for this, maybe it's 11 for that, yeah, but 10 yeah. being the average, yeah, absolutely. But put all that together and it becomes a pretty interesting, a pretty interesting package. And I think the, for me, the thing that, you know, the thing that struck me is just the, you know, it's an ecosystem play. Like it hooks into everything that AWS has. And in one of the keynotes, Andy Jassy, like put a slide, if you can call it a slide of like their different services. And it took like... I want five screens wide in order to display all the services. It did. So that's SageMaker. Dave? I'm curious about what's, what SageMaker is really going to enable. They've obviously had customers using SageMaker, as we saw today during the Werner keynote. There was an example customer that was talking about how they had developed a service using SageMaker, Mm. which means obviously they've gone to companies and had them use it prior to the announcement, which is common with Amazon. They have some type of pilot customers uh, and such so that they can ensure that the service meets the needs of of their customer base. What I'm curious about, uh, there are a lot of questions when you're doing machine learning in my mind of those 10 algorithms. If you're a novice, how do you know which algorithm is appropriate for what you're trying to do? Mm -hmm. 
how does SageMaker tell me that or not? I'm not saying it doesn't. I'm saying, I don't know. How does it do that? There's also labeling of data when you're bringing data in to do machine learning. How is that achieved? Do you have to figure all of that out yourself before you feed it into SageMaker? Again, I don't know, but I'm curious about that. I'm curious about how you decide what featureization needs to take place. So how do you choose the right labeled data to apply to perform the machine learning? If you have a small data set or your data set is simple or it's highly structured, probably not that difficult. Highly unstructured, say you have thousands or hundreds of thousands of potential features, how do you drill through and select those? Even if you're a highly qualified data scientist, you're still going to need domain expertise if you're trying to solve a problem in a domain that you're not an expert in. Right. So how do you go about that? Again, I don't know. I'm curious about it. Then as you begin to get results, how do you constrain your problems so that you're getting a high enough level of confidence in what's being predicted out of the algorithm? Mm -hmm. And obviously, there's hyperparameter optimizations. It's cool that, that they do auto-tuning using machine learning for all the different hyperparameters. That is something valuable. I have seen that done. It is very valuable. It does work. It's very useful. So absolutely excited about that. And then the other thing that I would question is, and what we haven't seen is what happens when we introduce what I would call the chaos components into machine learning? Mm. So think of the, again, today we had the chaos uh, presentation where they were talking about continuously injecting failures into the system. What happens is you, as you feed data into the model and you get unexpected results out, how do you go back and refine your model? And what is the process to then update the model? It doesn't seem very clean right now to do updating of models in SageMaker. It may be, again, from the presentations and, and what I've read so far, I don't see that. So I'm very curious to see. Also curious how reinforcement learning would be done. How can my model then take the feedback and continue to develop? And again, how do you deal with bad data when that occurs so that your model doesn't end up skewing and ending up providing horrible results because you've got a bad batch of, of inputs? So those are some of the curious things that I believe are harder and make it a little bit more difficult than just have the kind of push button experience. So I want to know how do they address those things? What are the aspects that they have overcome? Because maybe some of these things they have already overcome. And if they have, I would love to see how they've done it. And, you know, if they haven't, how far away are they? Because those are all going to be things that I, I think will hit people when they try and, and leverage this for real-world applications. Mm -hmm. yeah, I think those are really interesting points. I think, you know, the you know, we think about SageMaker as, I don't want, maybe democratizing is probably too, not only overused, but too broad for this. But in terms of, you know, to Lawrence's earlier point, making, you know, machine learning, you know, if not more accessible, just taking some of the crap out of the process of, you know, like even getting AMIs set up, you know, can be a major pain in the butt. And there, you know, in theory, you're just supposed to launch them and they work and you can go to a URL and pull up a Jupyter notebook, you know, but then you haven't, you know, that doesn't get into like, you know, where you're training and all that kind of stuff. Right. But so, you know, it certainly takes a lot of the, you know, the chopping wood and carrying water, you know, the saying goes out of the equation for data scientists, but Probably the most disturbing thing I've heard here on a couple of occasions is that 
SageMaker will allow developers to develop, you know, AI applications. Like we're not quite, all of the questions that you brought up are, you know, that's data science, right? That's, that's the stuff that you need to know. And we're not at the point where we're not there yet, but that's not the case for like the APIs on the, you know, the higher level APIs, which are kind of interesting, but you haven't given us the thing that you are most excited about. Dave. What am I most excited about? I would say the combination of what's trying to be done with SageMaker with what's happening with what I'll call the less announcements. So that would be all of the Lambda stuff, aka serverless, Mm -hmm. the containerless announcements with EKS and such. And then being able to tie those things together with machine learning, being able to run your own algorithms outside of the ones that AWS supplies, that's pretty exciting to me, being able to kind of wire all of those things together. And I would say the idea that people are now able to build complete solutions out of entirely AWS managed services without needing to then build and run their own services to still have what I call a viable business or viable infrastructure for their business. That's pretty exciting to me. That that begins to, again, the overuse word, democratize the infrastructure much more because now I don't need an army of experts just to just to build and operate the the core infrastructure components like run my database or something that should have been trivial a long time ago. Right. That's pretty exciting to me. Yeah, for me, for me, it's like a, there's a bunch of stuff that's, you know, I have all the, the questions, right? But there's a bunch of stuff that's interesting, like outside of the realm of the of the AI stuff. So we won't go into this in a lot of detail, but Elemental. Did you see that? Yes. Elemental stuff is basically like spin up your own Netflix. Like all of the Every pieces that, you re- that are required to build a media serving business there as a service pay by the second or minute or hour, whatever it is for this one. That's amazing. I remember trying to solve that problem. You know, this was probably like five years ago and like you had to spin up. I remember the thing that I was trying to do was like a transcoding thing. You could only do it on a Windows AMI. So you had to spin up a Windows AMI, which was in and of itself a pain in the butt. And then you had to like put together all of your, you know, you had to, you know, messaging services and like batch runners. And I mean, and this was like a small sliver of what one of those APIs offers. And now they're basically giving you like Netflix business in a box. I'm wondering what service that evolved out of. Did it evolve out of Prime or did it evolve out of Twitch? They acquired a company. I forget the, and probably it was Elemental. I forget the, it might have been Elemental, was, but they acquired yeah. a, they acquired a company based in Seattle, I think. Do you know the, that story? Elemental, yep, that's right. Okay. And they, actually they've had the company, it's been a couple of years since that acquisition, right? Years, yep. Mm-hmm. Well, that was Cloud9 today with the IDE. That was an acquisition. Right. And now it's the Amazon ID, which actually looked pretty cool to me as well. That's got to be exciting for developers. I mean, that's that's quite an improvement on on the console experience. So, does it change the AWS console itself, or or can you access the AWS services straight out of Cloud Nine? It has a CLI direct CLI interface, a direct terminal interface. Oh wow! And it has the ability for you to 
locally deploy a Lambda function, try it out, debug it, and then remotely deploy it onto AWS Lambda, all baked in. That's pretty pretty cool. Plus, it has the syntax highlighting and all of the other juicy things that you would expect, and collaborative features where you can do simultaneous code editing and messaging. Oh, wow. and, uh, it's Google Docs for IDEs. I mean, that's essentially what it is. That sounds incredible. Yeah, I forgot that they even acquired Cloud9. Yeah, I, I had forgotten as well, and I saw it on Twitter, and then yeah, the one of the one of the founders or something of Cloud9 kind of confirmed. Yep, that's our stuff. Uh, huh. Yeah. Wow. Uh, interesting. So, along the kind of the point of the integration, the the thing that I'm most excited about is actually this. I guess I mean it's hard to choose, but this Deep Lens thing. First of all, so deep. So what is Deep Lens? Right. Deep Lens is. It's not a production service. It's not something that, you know, they're trying to get people to use. It's a developer's kit. And it's basically a camera mounted on, you know, something analogous to a Raspberry Pi, right? And so from that perspective, like, you know, like SageMaker, I think, you know, my first impression was, well, you know, it's kind of like a camera mounted on a Raspberry Pi. Is it really that big a deal? But then you get into like all of the integration with all these, uh, these other things. So, for example, I, I mentioned I sat in on this workshop and basically deployed the hot dog, not hot dog right. app. But to do that, like you, you know, you're hooking in with the identity access management, obviously, right? That's there. You're hooking in with. So the, the device is running Greengrass, right? You know Greengrass? Yeah, that's, that's their IoT part of their IoT platform. Yeah, basically like it allows you to execute like AWS API commands on a local mm-hmm. device. On edge right? devices, yep. Yeah, so so this thing is running Greengrass. The developer experience is like you go to Sage, you build out your application, you know, in Sage and we used a like a squeeze net is like a kind of compressed CNN, you know, built on MXNet, you know, built this thing, you deploy it out and, you know, via this connection with Greengrass, it just like deploys out to this box. And then, you know, it's super easy to hook it into Lambda functions and to trigger like hooking into the IoT suite and stuff like that. Well, and I think that's one of the interesting things is that they are making Lambda kind of ubiquitous. Greengrass allows you to run Lambda all the way out at the edge. Now you're able to run arguably Lambda functions on devices, and you can obviously run Lambda functions on Lambda services up in Mm -hmm. the cloud. I think that's kind of telling of of where things go. Mm -hmm. Uh, It, to me, harkens all the way back to, for those people that remember the early days of Java and the idea of running Java anywhere. And they had the micro JVM that would run on phones and things all the way to the idea of running it in set-top boxes to then running it on your computer at home to running it in servers. So I think think Lambda is kind of the evolution of that idea to run out at the edge. I think that's pretty exciting. One other little point about the Raspberry Pi analogy for, for the deep lens device itself from what I understand, the hardware in that deep lens device is incredibly powerful. Yes. Um, to to the point of being almost 100 times as powerful as what you'd see in a Raspberry Pi. Yeah. In fact, so the hardware, it's an Intel Atom processor. And somehow they've managed to get 100 gigaflops a second out of that 
device. That's the number、wow. they're claiming. A hundred gigaflops. A hundred gigaflops. Wow. You know that's the same order of magnitude as a like an Nvidia Jetson with the GPU. Right. That's like one fifty. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. But, right. An ad processor. But an ad processor and a camera. Wow. Right. And so you know, you're, clearly, you're not going to train there, but that's not the point. Like you've got the cloud for that,、yes. and you just one-click push your models down to this thing, and you're doing inference with 100 gigaflops,、mm. which arguably gives you as close to real time as as you can get, at least today, with the compute power. Which, seeing the opportunities of of having a real time identification model that you can apply to video and to images. The number of applications that there are for something like that—I、mm. can think of a hundred off the top of my head,、mm. let alone all of the ones that I'm not aware of in thousands of other places. Right. right. That seems to be the strategy for Amazon. Let's empower the developers to get creative and really build out as many solutions and POCs as possible, and hopefully some of that will stick and and make it to the market. And, yeah. But for two hundred forty-nine dollars, what do you think? Right. Right, supported、uh, by that number, or you know, I think it's a good number. What struck me just now was this should have been the path that Google Glass took,、mm. and I think Amazon's going to get a heck of a lot more uptake with this than Google did with Google Glass.、Mm. How should Google have applied it to Glass? Price point or integration, or I, I think integration ecosystem and the. Well, Google Glass had a cool concept with you just wear these glasses all the time and such. Some people found it invasive, right? Whereas if you have a camera or you have a device that's like your phone, and I'm holding it up, you know that I'm filming you, unless you're like really crafty. But、right. overall, you know someone is filming or taking your picture, or they're using the device.、Right. So that kind of eliminates a lot of the perceptive privacy concerns,、uh-huh. and then having this. Incredible set of capabilities beyond just you know I can look at my email or something like this. This is more of a developer approach of all of these amazing things that I can integrate and do with Deep Lens versus Google Glass, where it was more of these are applications and you have to go that route. It's more a consumer. They try to they almost try like to, the snap the snap glasses, right?、Yes. They try to make a consumer thing when they miss the opportunity to develop to enable a developer ecosystem to Lawrence's、yeah. point. I mean, they've got the you know Alexa device, and they now have the dash buttons.、Mm-hmm. Real simple, real affordable, and now the deep lens. So that's a pretty powerful combination. Do you know the difference between the IoT one-click buttons and the dash buttons?、Uh, that dash buttons they've had for a while now, years, right? At least two or three years, yeah. And and this time they announced these IoT one-click buttons that. I haven't figured out what the difference is. There, I believe they're an evolution of the dash buttons. Okay, and you can actually hack dash buttons to do other things.、Um, from what I understand, I've, well, I've not they, done it, but it, they're almost the same thing, but I think not quite. I also believe they've streamlined the experience of programming the IoT buttons to be able to make them again more developer friendly versus the dash, which is consumer. I think that's really it, though. I don't think there's like dramatic、uh, differences. Okay, I may be thinking of something 
there was the consumer dash buttons and there was maybe there was like some limited edition developer version of that because you could or maybe it was a hack thing that do you, I don't believe it's released yet publicly it, okay it was, yeah i heard the same thing it was a giveaway they gave away those iot buttons last year last year right i believe last year yeah and then, so maybe that was just like the prelude to this iot one click thing i think so which is still interesting and it still gives you a, a good pathway I, I think that's one thing that they're trying to do is enable lots of different ways of leveraging iot which is the right approach i mean especially amazon's Amazon, or at least AWS, their entire growth strategy is around enabling the ecosystem and expanding it. And that's what mm-hmm. they keep doing. They empower developers and they create all of these componentized things to make it easier to, to build more things. And then they, they continue that cycle. The ecosystem grows and they get more customers and it's a virtuous cycle. Mm-hmm. So there were a ton of IoT-related announcements. Lawrence, you're our IoT guy. What what do you think? Well, you're an IoT guy now, too, I guess, at G-Digital. <laughs> but what, what struck you as interesting on the IoT side of things? Let's think. What was there? Wednesday, Wednesday morning, I believe. They had quite a few IoT announcements. They have a lot of IoT announcements around managing IoT devices and mm-hmm. interacting with large numbers of them and having control and such over IoT devices or consider large numbers of them. It's like fleet management That's of right. IoT stuff. That's exactly. The ones that were like closest related to the AI thing were the there was a IoT analytics offering that they announced and the Greengrass ML inference. Which I think is just the productized version of the Deep Lens. Actually, like what Deep Lens is doing is I think a product or, yeah, I think that's the the generic kind of productized version of what the, the Deep Lens is doing where the developer experience, the envisioned developer experience is, you know, develop using SageMaker or something else, kind of one-click push your model after it's been trained to not just Deep Lens, but any green grass device. And then do inference on the edge. That one is in preview now, so you have to fill out a form to get access to it. Which I'm curious. I'm curious how long it stays in preview, how quickly they can evolve that. There's a lot of value in being able to run at the edge, collect the IoT data, perform analytics, and do things like machine learning inference. The number of different industrial applications is, is pretty high. So I can see that. I, I'm curious what other applications we'll see and what the demos next year will be like. Mm-hmm. Uh, that That's where the kind of proverbial rubber will meet the road. Mm-hmm. At Perimeter, are you doing a lot of, or do you see much applications for that kind of thing? The edge, the kind of the intersection of IoT and machine learning and AI and running stuff at the edge and all that? Yeah, I mean, basically the... You know, the, the common use case would be predictive analytics, right? Predict, uh-huh. Predictive maintenance, so just trying to optimize an asset, its life and maintenance. So, you know, we're in our platform, we've got a machine learning component that ties directly into the AWS ML service. And so we'll, you know, generate, again, models, train the models, and then allow the inferences to really trigger an action that we're going to take mm-hmm. in the IoT platform. So that that use case is fairly common. 
I guess it sounds like the what's new to some of this is the edge element of it. Is that have you been doing that part for a while as well, or is that yeah, that's evolving? fairly new. And you're you're referring to just the the recognition, the video image capabilities. When I think of or when I've heard like the IoT at the edge, the idea I guess is that you know you've got you know whatever plant you know using the term you've got some bank of sensors right you know at either a physical facility or you know within a geographic region and you're you want to do you know things like predictive maintenance or other analytics against them but you don't want to pull all that data centrally mm-hmm. back to the cloud you want to push some of that processing more locally so you put you deploy these edge devices so Greengrass was like a software stack for these edge devices that allowed you to basically use the same API calls that you would use in cloud-based Lambda on the edge. It's like a programming model for you know these edge devices. And then the, what they announced this week is this ML inference thing, which is you know in addition to be able to, being able to run these Lambda models, you can also or these Lambda functions, you mm-hmm. can also deploy machine learning models from SageMaker and other things, presumably other things, onto the green grass devices themselves. Right. Yeah, I feel like we're, we're still in early days of seeing that being deployed, but it'll be interesting to see how that grows over the next few years. Mm-hmm. Are you seeing, Dave, in your role, more of that type of application? We're seeing more of a requirement to be able to do that for different types of applications where either the data is too large to use the cloud or there are compliance regulatory or governance issues that would prevent prevent it from being sent to the cloud so it needs to stay and run locally that could be in something like healthcare or it could be something that's large scale industrial we have an application today for a customer that in a single year a single application out of an industrial machine generates 600 petabytes of data. I don't want to send 600 petabytes of data up to the cloud. Is it possible? Absolutely, it's possible. Why would I send that that level of data up to the cloud? I'd rather apply the data locally, do some processing, and send the essence to the cloud. Mm -hmm. Or if I did want to send it to the cloud, I would still want to send intelligent decision-making back down to the edge to be able to make those decisions. So, And that needs to be in a reasonably compact footprint mm-hmm. because it might be on an industrial floor or it might be somewhere else where I can't have you know, lots and lots of gear taking up space, consuming power, using resources, or at risk that it's going to be damaged. So it's something we're seeing, but... I still think that's four to five years out before we see that kind of gaining the momentum of being commonplace where it's being rolled out everywhere. So I would agree it's early days for that. Not early days for machine learning in production, but out at the edge, people are still trying to feel their way on how all these things fit together. That's. I mean, let's, let's see if we can come up with some use cases. I can think of maybe an Airbnb example, since everyone loves to build and take advantage of that, that industry. So maybe a video camera stream at the door, your guests, you have a picture of, of them in advance. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, they've made the booking. Mm-hmm. They're going to arrive and perhaps the device, the camera 
kind of lock the doors mm-hmm. based on that capture at the doorway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I well, I know Amazon has the service, the security service that was allowing for delivery people to walk up and it would unlock the door for them to put the delivery inside and then shut the door. I know they're fixing it and all of that because it had a security mm-hmm. issue, but still the possibilities of having something like that, as you were saying for Airbnb, that would be fantastic. You could eliminate the the need to even give guests a key. That would be very handy in my mind. What's interesting about that example is I think at least for me personally, it really illustrates the, the power of, you know, what the cloud is bringing to all of this, right? You know, we'll use AWS as an example because we're here because, you know, but, you know, Google has their own ecosystem of, of similar things. Microsoft has their own ecosystem of similar things. With any of these ecosystems, you know, I can pretty easily imagine, like, let's take the case of the, of AWS, like put your, your deep lens, you know, out at your, your, your door, you know, it's filming video, you know, someone presses your dash button or your IOT one click, which is your doorbell, right? That sends an IOT request that gets pushed down to your deep lens to turn on, do a face recognition, Right. You match that against your your Airbnb guest profile. That's right. Even do an on device inference, you know, do another IoT request that unlocks your door. Of course, you can manually override all of this stuff. You can have a dash button by your desk to let them in if you want, you know, or you can, you know, get a regular camera and stream that video out to recognition video, which we haven't talked about yet, but is also something they announced today and do similar facial recognition you could even do actually i don't remember if they do like emotion like you can you know does this person look scary that's not right. should i let them in angry? <laughs> sentiment right. analysis right uh-huh. yeah. but even at this relatively early stage of the game right it becomes easy to see how you can put all these pieces together to build pretty interesting applications quickly i liken it to to the whole idea I think that we would all love to have something like Jarvis from Iron Man, that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. Mm -hmm. The components are getting there. We're still a ways off. I I have no illusions that anytime soon we're going to see this amazing Jarvis. But the components that you see from the movie, if you go back to, I think it's 2008, Mm -hmm. they're all starting to happen. Mm-hmm. Maybe not a flying suit that does all these amazing things, but the idea of <laughs> but Jarvis... But Elon's working on that one. Well, but the idea that, that Jarvis is this assistant for, you know, for Tony Stark and that uh, an Iron Man and that he can do these things. He'll say so-and-so's at the front door, you know, should I let them in? You can see those types of things happening and you can see that that kind of digital assistant, I'll call it, carrying on to the car and the, and you being able to do all these things for your car. So you're driving your car and you find out that someone's at your door, but it's able to know that you're actually headed home right now. And they're saying, do you want me to let the guest into your home? Because I know it's your aunt Sally. Do you want to let aunt Sally in while you're on your way home or not? Right. By the way, I didn't have to look at my phone. Aunt Sally didn't have to call me. I didn't have to do any of those things. I simply hear it and respond while I'm driving. I can totally see that happening in, say, five to 10 years easily with these components that Amazon is and the other companies, frankly, whether it be Microsoft, Azure, or, or GCP, 
I see the components there. I see it as it's, it's within reach. It's not, you know, oh, that's science fiction a hundred years from now. Mm -hmm. It's getting really close. Mm -hmm. uh, so some of those, those higher level components that AWS announced this week are just mentioned recognition video. So recognition with is a K. there. Recognition with a K. <laughs> <laughs> is that another acquisition? I don't know. I don't believe so. I, I met with, I don't remember if he was a GM. I think it was a GM of, of that business. And so Amazon's got this really interesting process where they, they call it the working backwards process. And they start with what is basically the press release for mm. the service that they want to announce and work backwards from there. And, you know, when they get to the end of a product development cycle, they go back to that document and determine whether they actually met the promise, you know, of this, this press, press release. release yeah. And so I met the, I, I spoke with the individual who authored this press release. So I, I believe it was, I mean, they could have in, uh, acquired some pieces, but I think it was internally developed. So recognition was announced, I think last year at reInvent. And that was image based object detection, you know, send it some images. It'll tag those with, you know, glass bottle, you know, whatever, beach ball. <laughs> and so they announced, in fact, last week, they had so many announcements at reInvent. They, you know, started announcing things like two weeks before and they may continue. I think I heard someone say there'll be some announcements after. They're doing, my understanding is today they're doing, I think, four to five an hour, every hour on the hour. Oh my God. And there will be announcements from what I've heard as well. There will be announcements into next week, wow. which is just <laughs> the sheer number of services. I think the services, it was like 3,600 plus services are now available. Wow. At some point, no matter who you are, you will not be able to keep track of all of the services oh, yeah. available, which makes you wonder if you keep looking at the AWS site, how are they going to make it so you can find the services that you right. want to use? I mean, it's an it interesting, it's an interesting issue, right? Because, and, and, you know, we'll put the recognition thing on the stack for a second, but like when I think about, you know, Alexa, like I've got, I don't know how many of them at home, like, no, no, I don't use any of them. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and they keep telling me that they're great and that there are like 1600 skills or 16,000 skills. I forget what the large number was, but like, there's no easy way to find them. Like you go through, I'm not going to search through 16,000 skills, you know, in the, in an app, you know, let alone like via voice. And well, it would be great though, if you could say, Alexa, what skills do you have around, you know, time or what skills do you have around? And it would say, I can do these. Or personalization. Alexa, I've been buying shit from you for, you know, uh, 10 years. How long has Amazon been around? Oh, like longer 20 than 10 years, years yeah. whatever. What skills do I need? <laughs> right. You know, half the things that exist in my house. That's right. <laughs> and what I buy on a weekly basis. Right. Right. Tell me what I need. No, I, I agree with that. I, I use my Alexa primarily for exercising. Okay. I set timers with Alexa and I have it play music for me or read the news while oh, I exercise. That's a good idea. And when you're exercising, you don't want to go touch your phone or your tablet or right. you don't want to deal with all of that. That is like a, an ideal example of wanting to be hands-free. That's perfect. So I've tried Alexa in the bedroom as the alarm clock and it's an interesting use case, but 
it kind of fails as an alarm clock because you can't check the time without waking up your spouse, <laughs> which, <laughs> kind of which is kind of, a, kind of a problem, right? I've tried it in the office, but I'm sitting in front of a computer and it's easier to just do whatever I want to do on a computer. But the exercise room is interesting. Exercise and kitchen. Those are the two mm -hmm. where you really don't want a computer yeah. involved. I've used it in the kitchen as well. Those are kind of the two ideal places that I found so far where I just hands down way easier to use Alexa mm. than really anything else. Mm. And they announced, did you, did you mention Alexa for business? That was um, announced this morning. That's right. Yeah. There's a, a business edition of Alexa that's being rolled out. So that'll be interesting. I think that's been another great use case is in the office on the conference table, mm -hmm. connecting to meetings, calls. Mm -hmm. I, I agree. I, I've always had this dream of a vision for Alexa and I'm sure someone's going to do it, but I would like to be sitting at a conference table, having a discussion and be able to have Alexa walk me through a process of narrowing down and making a decision. So kind mm. of, I think that would be fantastic. Another thing that would be interesting would Dave, be... Dave, it sounds like you guys are all over the map on this one. <laughs> <laughs> I recommend the Ben Franklin process. Get a piece of paper and draw a line down the middle and write the pros and cons. <laughs> uh, well, uh, you know, maybe not, maybe not exactly like that, but, you know, maybe presenting all of the possibilities and then providing something like a map that's output of all the things that were discussed or mm. ideally a Wardley map after a strategic discussion. That mm -hmm. would be fantastic. That would be amazing. Or Alexa being able to act as a moderator or a mediator. Mm -hmm. That would be fantastic. Mm -hmm. Those would be things, do I think these are going to be out in six months? No, and I'm not saying that at all. But I think those would be fantastic, highly, highly, highly common things that happen in conference rooms every single day across every industry that would be incredibly valuable. Mm. And it seems like it wouldn't be that far away. Another interesting example, I've talked to a couple of companies now that are building platforms for doing information augmentation based on like transient listening. So, you know, the scenario here might be you can say, Alexa, you know, start listening and, you know, help us out. Right. And, you, and, you know, it turns on the computer screen and it's just listening to your conversation. And as you talk about things, you know, it's doing entity recognition, identifying the important stuff, maybe based on all of the documents it's scanned in your environment. And it's, you mentioned, you know, well, we talked about that in the report last, you know, year that, that was issued, blah, blah, blah. And it throws that up on the screen. I actually like that. I can think of uses where just talking about like a public company and going, oh, well, what was on their, you know, on their latest quarterly report? And Alexa goes, okay, I want the latest quarterly report for ACMECO. It goes up, automatically looks up, looks it up and displays it on the screen right. for mm -hmm. everyone to see. And you don't have one person typing at a keyboard and going, oh, well, I have their quarterly report up here. And well, that's great. Now, can you email it to me? So then you email it to me. Now everybody's on their computer and they're opening up the, the report. Instead, it's just displayed and, and the section that you're talking about is highlighted. Yeah. That would be fantastic. Yeah. That's certainly the natural evolution of, of where Alexa and voice recognition is moving. You got to believe that, right? I mean, it's but that's a that's the right point, right? Evolution. We are not there yet. Oh, definitely we are not. So far from that. <laughs> but you got to think. I mean, just based on where how Amazon began, just the, the idea of buying a book online, right? Right. They made that 
you know, everyday normal activity now, right? Right. E-commerce. And, and so they're doing the same thing with voice. No doubt they're providing these devices. It sounds pretty cumbersome and silly and awkward at home in the kitchen when mm-hmm. you're talking through your Alexa device. But soon, you know, I think 10, maybe 10 years or less, it becomes a normal thing. Mm-hmm. And in business, you're going to see people or managers and, and line workers demand for voice interaction to get perform their work. Mm-hmm. Right. So right now at, at, at one of our projects, we're deploying a, a platform called ThingLogic's Foundry. And the one use case in an agricultural setting is, and I believe this is a cattle rancher or farm setting where you've got gloves on trying mm-hmm. to package the, the meat to the butcher. And just the idea of having to take your gloves off and record with a pen and paper oh, because wow. you count each, each part and the volume and weight. Having to do that and take off your gloves and put it back on is just a pain. Mm-hmm. And so the ability to just speak to a device to mm-hmm. log a, that information for you and then send the order. Probably double the efficiency at a minimum. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. You can minimum. easily see that. And so I think that's, that's slow, but we got to get through this, this psychology, this human mindset of, that's silly. Why would I, why would I speak to a machine. To a machine <laughs> to do my work. And that's the magic of, you know, making these things like super easily accessible and, and letting everyone get one for, I think the price went down to as low as 29 bucks for right. Prime Day, not Prime Day, uh, Black Friday and all that stuff. I believe you're right. Well, and I, I see it as not only do we, do we see this marching along, do we see the sophistication of the services going up? I can see going into stores. We, a while back, they had the Amazon Go, which was the store where you could go in and they use sensor fusion to be able to go in and you buy things by just by putting them in the cart or Not taking them out. a while back, they had it. A while back, they announced it. Yes, they announced it. And, and there was a store that was actually an Amazon Go store and, and it's still there in Seattle. Recently in Seattle- You can actually I, go to one? Employees could go and supposedly it's supposed to be open, yes. Oh, a really? Store. I didn't realize that. And there's also- at least one, an Amazon physical bookstore. I've been there and purchased things from an Amazon physical bookstore. Is that in New York? No, it's in Seattle. Oh, it's really? in Bellevue, actually. Okay. Yeah. And I thought about it. The way it works, you go in, it's geared towards making you want to become a Prime member because you get discounts on the items in the store by being a Prime member. But then when you check out, you simply pull up your Amazon account on your AWS app on your iPhone you set it to camera mode and you scan a 3D barcode and it presents a 3D barcode on your phone that you scan at the register and it pulls up all your information. It gives all, you know, your account and it says, do you want to charge it to your normal card for Prime? Huh. And, and you can just say yes and it will email you a receipt and you leave. Oh, wow. And I was thinking the only next step would be to use Sensor Fusion for me to have a photo of myself tied to my Prime account. And when I walk in, it recognizes me. I take my stuff and I walk out of the store. And it just charges my Prime account and I get the email receipt. And I mean, there are so, there are so many ways to do that with the Sensor Fusion. You can do the video thing that you, I mean, with Apple's, recognition. Apple's demonstrated that, you know, you can do it with the 3D point cloud thing with the uh, iPhone 10. You can do a facial recognition off a camera with, with video. You could, you know, Amazon shopping app is on my phone. You know, it could access location services. I've trained my Alexa with my voice to differentiate between the people in the house that are using it. Like, so Sam, do you want to make this purchase? Yes, I do. It knows that 
you know, it's probably me and I'm in the right location. So now, Sam, do you want to share that you made that purchase with your wife? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, maybe, maybe you were both going to go and buy something and you can say, Oh, share this purchase with my wife. Oh. So she knows mm. that I bought milk and she doesn't need to pick up milk mm -hmm. on the way home or whatever it happens to be. Mm -hmm. There's value in that. Yeah. yeah. So just for sake of completeness, API services. We keep coming back to recognition, but there are some others, right? So they announce translate. Well, they announce translate, transcribe, and comprehend. Comprehend is kind of interesting, I think. Like you can put a document corpus up on S3 and, you know, call an API and it will do entity extraction and topic modeling and a bunch of interesting NLP stuff. You know, lots of questions, right? How well does it work is the first one, but the, you know, the idea that you can just do that with a presumably a huge corpus of documents and just have one click, you know, all of that stuff. Like, and the example they gave was, you know, for example, financial news articles, financial articles, it can identify all the brands that are mentioned. It can do sentiment analysis. It can identify places, people. And there are a bunch of other categories of stuff. That's pretty cool. I can imagine being able to, you know, say, Alexa, what's the current sentiment with Brexit or pick your controversial mm. topic? Mm. And well, on Facebook, it's this. On Twitter, it's this. And, you know, <laughs> wow. across the average news media, it's this. And the confidence rating is 72%. The Russian bots seem to think that. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I can see being able to ask questions like that and actually have a, a reasonable answer in the near future. Mm -hmm. So translate is another interesting one. Like it kind of depends on how well it works, I guess. That's, I, I, that's what I'm curious about. I know that translation, language to language translation, it turns out is an astronomically difficult problem. And having been incredibly poor at, at all languages, I would argue, including English, <laughs> and then learning of other languages and all of the challenges that you get. I went to China and the difficulty in translating, for example, technology terms into mm. Mandarin, there are no words. So they will substitute other words that mm. don't make sense if you run them through Google Translate, for example. Mm -hmm. It comes out as like, the soap starfish, and you're like, what is soap starfish? <laughs> I was talking about cloud computing. How does that relate? So the, I, I see problems with that, and they're problems, especially if you try to convert from one language to another, and then you take that conversion and try and convert it again in oh, translation. Yeah. Forget it. It will be so far off from what you expected. Were you telling me about the caption video thing? No, no, no. Somebody was just telling me about this earlier. Today or yesterday, there somebody did a, I forget what it was. They, there was some project where they took some video and I don't know if they automatically generated captions from it or they, I think they like auto, yeah, they auto did speech to text on what it said. And then they like acted out in the video what the thing said it said and then they ran it again. They ran it again against what the actual against, original content was. No, they. It's like they did two layers of like running it through oh, this either text to speech or pulling off captions or something. I don't know. I'll find it and put it in the show notes. But it sounds like something that would be hilarious to take a look at. I would love to see that. Yeah. 
So there's there's translate. I think for me here, the like the from what I've seen, and granted they just announced this, but you know I think of Google as like the company to beat. Mm-hmm. They Google's done you know some amazing stuff with translation. I bought the Pixel Buds. I returned them once I realized that actually the Pixel Buds is just a button to activate the app that's yeah, already on your phone. Like, why? Yeah. <laughs> what? And and not only that, like it's the. It's way easier to do the two-person real-time translation, which is amazing when it works, but it's much easier to do it just on your phone without the the stupid buds. That was a cool thing that suckered me into the $160 Bluetooth headphones. It sounded like a universal translator from Star Trek. That's what everyone wanted. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I should have known better, but hey, return policies. Well, but, you know, with the deep lens, you think about massive compute power and machine learning and such on a portable portable device. Yeah. Not that far away from yeah. it. But the other thing about, I think Google does a better job like publishing their models and algorithms on their research blog than Amazon. And that, that like, I feel better about that than Translate, which is, you know, it's literally a black box with without a lot of input into the way they're thinking about it or kind of contribution back into the the community. I think you're right. I think that's something that Amazon has traditionally struggled with. That was like the announcement that they made, I think it was last week, about providing consulting services around machine learning and and having expertise and being able to help you do machine learning by providing this consultation, which if SageMaker is so amazingly easy, why do you need consultants to help you do machine <laughs> learning? You might ask that question. The question that I posed on Twitter that remains unanswered. Who owns the IP if you come in as Amazon mm. and come in and do consulting and help me develop an algorithm or we you work with my domain experts right. and we who owns that IP? Does that right. stay as my IP? Is it jointly owned IP? Mm. Or how does that work? That remains unanswered and I'm curious about that because that I mean, we all know Amazon loves to, you know, loves to replicate things that they find that run on their platform and such that's there's no question about that it's happened a thousand times plus now you could argue that who owns the ip is you know the last decade's question and you know this it's this decade's question or the future you know decades to come question is who owns the data like do i have to license my data to you right that's right right and are you allowing other customers to benefit somehow from my data. Well, it's my data and it's my machine learning model to solve my domain specific problem, right. which is likely key to my business. Right. Man, giving you access to my data, which is at the heart of my business and the algorithmic processes that I use to solve my business problems. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't do it if I was, if I, <laughs> no way I would do that. Otherwise, what's, you know, what's stopping your competitor from gaining the exact same insight you have that really differentiates your business from your competitors? Or I didn't say it, but what's stopping AWS or Amazon from competing with you? It's not like they've ever done that before. Right. Well, true. But for example, with GE, I'm doubtful that Amazon's going to get into making jet engines or maintaining yeah. nuclear power plants anytime soon. Yeah. That, it's highly doubtful. Impossible? Nope, I won't say that. <laughs> it is possible. Just I doubt it. Right. And I guess the that I've mentioned all of them, the transcription. I'm kind of personally interested in the transcription one as a podcaster because I wanna I'm gonna try it. Like 
take the and maybe sure. compare like all the different ones because Google has something similar. Microsoft, I think Watson's got one. The the results of my attempts at using these kinds of services have been variable. Let's say it's not there yet. What was kind of interesting about this one? Two features that they announced as coming soon. They're not here yet. Okay. Multiple speakers. It's kind of important on a podcast like this, identifying and, you know, tagging the texts from the different speakers. I haven't come across any of the other services that, that do that well in an, in an automated way, but also custom vocabularies. Huge for this kind of podcast. That is exactly, like If I can yes. train it or tell it about CNNs and RNNs and gradient descent and... You know, that would, that could potentially increase the quality of translations for a podcast like this significantly. It could also increase the quality of translations from language to language. For I example, I don't think they mentioned custom vocabularies in the translation product. But I'm saying it wouldn't be a far leap if right. they get it right for transcription. Right. How hard would it be to then do translation? Yeah. And translation, if they could do real time translation when you were mentioning the, the, the Google side, I was thinking, imagine being able to get five or six international speakers together and have a podcast and each of them speaks a different language, yet mm. the interaction could be smooth without needing right. a team of translators right. or making people have to be able to be bi, tri, or multilingual. That that would be pretty exciting. That would open up a lot of new doors mm. that that and eliminate barriers that we face today in being able to share more information between each other when, when language is a barrier. Even more simply than that, I mean, the podcast, this podcast has listeners all over the world, but, you know, English is a potentially huge barrier to Absolutely. entry, right? Absolutely. What if, you know, without me doing the interviews and, you know, us doing this interview in multiple languages, right? right folks can access that, you know, at, with pretty high quality in specialized contexts in their native language. That would be phenomenal. That would be amazing. Absolutely agree. So lots of cool stuff happening around AI in the cloud. Any final words, thoughts, anything? Have you guys seen the Simarin announcement, the 3D mixed reality? Any thoughts on that? I have not. That's one of the announcements I haven't seen. Yeah, that came out Sunday night, I believe. So it kind of flew under the radar, but I believe there was a session. I didn't get a chance to attend. I was wondering if you guys I just saw the pictures. I don't know enough about that space to like contextualize how interesting it is. There are two pieces of it that kind of caught me as interesting. One is like they've got this like VR developer app kind of thing, which I don't know. It seems like they're, you know, I'm imagining that tons of people are doing that kind of stuff. This, you know, will have cloud hooks, which is kind of interesting. I don't know if it's backed by a service like the game service and the physics engines and that kind of stuff. Maybe, but they also have this thing that is kind of interesting, but kind of hokey. Like you can create, you can build out these virtual worlds in this app, but you can also create these virtual agents and you can give them like, you can like design them from a physical characteristic perspective, like skin color, hair type and hair color and mm -hmm. whatever. And you can there's an API that allows these virtual agents to like interact in this virtual world. I didn't see any specific mention of integration with Lex, for example, which is their chatbot platform. But you've got to imagine that 
those are all plugged together. And so, you know, they're building this second life-esque kind of virtual world with intelligent chatbots in it that have like humanoid features. And yeah, I, I, I've, that that's something I'm, I'm going to personally pass on for a while. I think I, I think I prefer real life for that. Yeah. Conversing with real people and such versus going into the virtual reality. I mentioned virtual training, like corporate training as a, as an example, you can do a training session, have, you know, your people come in, there's a virtual greeter that can get them to their training session. I don't know. That's like, that's what I said. It's kind of hokey. I don't really get it, but. Well, corporate training is, is hard to make kind of a good experience. <laughs> it it just is. Yeah. We're going to do compliance training. How many people are like, oh yeah, compliance training. I can't wait to do that. Yeah. Said nobody. Right. But I think it'll get there one day. I think augmented reality will happen. I just think we're still pushing it and I still think it's early looking at all the different devices I've seen. I still haven't seen something where I'm like, okay, I have to have that. That's going to be the future. Certainly not a gigantic headset that I'm wearing. Nothing like that. That's not going to happen. Part of that is just because we're geezers. I don't know. It's it looks kind of silly and clunky, and I, I, that usually becomes the barrier for people using it. That was one of the barriers for Google Glass. People were walking around, and it just didn't look. It looked odd. Even in the Bay Area, you'd walk around and you'd see somebody wearing Google Glass, and you're like, uh, "You're in when they patch it into your nerve bundle." Yeah, that's right. Jack me in like the Matrix, <laughs> but they just plug it right in. Then, I, then I'm in. Yeah. Any final thoughts from you? I thought it was a great show. And I'm looking forward to seeing what happens next year. And I'm also looking forward to seeing what the competition does kind of as their kind of next level things. It's fun to watch the space evolve. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's you know worth following that up. I mean, there's definitely kind of this continual one-upsmanship here. Like, you know, SageMaker, which we talked about, a great example. Like everyone else ha- had it. Amazon didn't have it. It's not kind of the Amazon way, you know, typical experience. They like to have things more API oriented, but they did it right. And they they did did it. They did some interesting things with it. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see. We didn't talk about with recognition and I'm like, we're going really long here, but with recognition, like one of the things that, you know, everyone's had, well, not everyone actually Google announced. I don't know if others have had it, but Google announced, for example, the last Google Next, I think it was the first video object detection. And so, you know, now Amazon has a little bit of this kind of, you know, one-upsmanship. The thing that's kind of supposed to be interesting with recognition is that, you know, typically the way that video object detection is done is it's done on a frame-by-frame basis. And what Amazon is saying that they are doing this, like, contextually, like temporally, they're looking at a time span of video and they're, so they're not only able to identify objects in a video, but also actions like, you know, you know, there's a cup, there's a person, the person is drinking. Right. It'll be interesting to see, like, I like to kind of play with that and see how that's the case. That is, that is a revolutionary thing to be able to make that leap, uh, for a machine's understanding that, this object is being used by this object in this way. That's that's big. A lot of questions there, but it is potentially huge. But, you know, another great example of this constant leapfrogging. And so I'm looking forward to the same things, just 
seeing how it all continues to evolve. Well, Dave McCrory, what's your Twitter handle? How can folks connect with you? It's my last name. It's at M-C-C-R-O-R-Y on Twitter. And Lawrence, are you on Twitter? I don't hang out there, but I do hang out on Instagram. Just Lawrence Chung underscore. Okay. Underscore at the end, like you said it? At the very end, yeah. Okay, cool. Awesome. Well, thanks, guys. Great discussion. Next time, maybe. Absolutely. Thanks for having us. Awesome. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for your continued feedback and support. For more information on Dave, Lawrence, or any of the topics covered in this episode, head on over to twimalai.com slash talk slash 83. To follow along with the AWS reInvent series, visit twimalai.com slash reInvent. Of course, we'd be delighted to receive your feedback or questions either via a comment on the show notes page or via Twitter to at twimalai or at Sam Charrington. Thanks again to Intel Nirvana for their sponsorship of this series. To learn more about DeepLens and the other things they've been up to, visit intelnirvana.com. And of course, thanks again for listening and catch you next time.